Hello and welcome to episode 32 of the Nerd Culture Podcast. The podcast for nerd culture. My name is David, and we'll be the NCP crew, as always, Richo. Well, it would make sense, given that it's called Nerd Culture Podcast, doesn't it? That it would be for nerd culture? Yeah, but it's and the Nerd Culture Podcast. Help me out here, Luke. <laughs> you see, what you're applying there, d- applying there, Richo, is a strange thing called logic. <laughs> Mm. It's what mathematicians use to determine, you know, the circumference of the Earth as it bounces up and down in space. Crystal, does the Earth really bounce up and down in space? Mm, bouncing's probably not the right word. I'm just confused now. Let's get on with the podcast. Nerd Culture Podcast is a fortnightly Australian podcast that, as previously mentioned, focuses on nerd culture-related film, book, and comic reviews with a healthy dose of opinion throwing for good measure. The opinion of the crew. You mentioned that previously, did you? Yes, previously mentioned. Right, so that's the whole bit about it being a nerd culture podcast for nerds. It's not the most inventive name of I I do grant you, but all the cool ones were taken. Yeah, that's fair enough. (laughs) Uh, Not only do we have the podcast, we also have our website at www.nerdculturepodcast.com. Thanks, Bill Shatner. (laughs) Which features additional content not found on the podcast itself. For this episode, we have a popcorn junkie on the Total Recall remake. Uh, a dust jacket, we'll be discussing the novel Anno Dracula by Kim Newman, as chosen by me. And a round table on the Wald Newton universe. Up first, Popcorn Junkie. Okay, so the crew just got back from seeing uh, Total Recall, which is, of course, the remake of the beloved 90s classic, and I am using that word, classic, uh, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, This new uh, version for the new generation is directed by Len Wiseman, who you would know from the Underworld films, uh, and stars Colin Farrell as Douglas Quaid, Brian Cranston as Cohagen, Kate Beckinsale, because it's a Len Wiseman film, so of course she's in it, as uh, Laurie, um, previously played by Sharon Stone, a memorable role, um, and Jessica Biel as uh, Melina. Melina. Um, and uh, a wasted <laughs> Bill Nye as, uh, what's his name? Matthias. Matthias as a new character who was meant to be the, the guy with the mutant in the stomach. Quato. Quato, that's right. Open your mind. <laughs> <laughs> Why not just call him Quarto? Yeah, just call him Quarto. Why, why, why rip off Richard Matheson and I am legend? <laughs> why not just give him Quarto from the uh, from the original film? Probably because ripping off other movies is what this film is all about. <laughs> like I said, it's it's a remake of Total Recall, so the story's not that much different. It's a little bit closer to the source material, but only just. Um, so essentially, it is the story of factory worker Doug, Douglas Quaid. Um, who dreams of a better life. He's, he's lives, uh, it's a pretty boring existence. The world's pretty crappy. Uh, the world's been split uh, after a bunch of chemical warfare. Uh, the world's been split between two uh, nations, um, but the, one of the other nations... Oh, well, the two nations are um, the United Federation of Britain or England or something like that, and The Colony, which is Australia. Australia's own The Colony. So, uh, so Britain still controls Australia, and the rest of the, part of the world has apparently been wiped out. I mean, that's pretty harsh but that's that's what it is and uh so all the people in the colony are basically scum the lower case uh kind of lower caste i'm sorry and uh they travel to the you know to britain through uh 
uh, there's an awesome tunnel that goes through the earth called the fall which is basically a giant elevator that transports them in 17 minutes from one side of the planet to the other a cool idea but uh, scientifically pretty shaky so like i said he dreams of a better life so he decides to go to Recall, which is, uh, just like in the original film, is um, a place that can implant memories for you. Um, so he goes off to, to get a new memory, and during that, of course, the you-know-what hits the fan, and uh, it's revealed that he is, in fact, a secret agent. Or is he? Oh, so it basically has that same sort of thing. And uh, he goes off on a secret agent quest where he needs to save the world and stop the colony from being wiped out. So that's it, in a nutshell, essentially. Um, if you've seen the original film, and if you haven't, go see it before seeing this, because then you won't bother seeing this. Um, it's not really that much different. The only main part, the main part that's taken out is that he doesn't go to Mars, although it is referenced, um, and there are no mutants. Um, the only person that you would see who would be sort of a mutant is the three-breasted prostitute, who of course makes a reappearance, because what's a film without a three-breasted prostitute? Um, but she's not a mutant, she is genetically enhanced. The real question that should be begged by this is, of all the ideas in the original film that you could use <laughs> in this, the idea of the triple bre- of I keep calling her Eccentric Galumbert from um, Hitchhiker's Guide to Galaxy, Eccentric Galumbert, the triple-breasted whore of Eroticon 6. <laughs> um, of all the ideas you could possibly use from the original Total Recall, that's the key one. Well, they use other, they use other ideas, I mean, they still have the, the lady that says two weeks, which is awesome, and... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, I did enjoy how it. they kind of twisted that, though. Yeah, it was yeah. it was it was pretty cool, and and like Crystal said, when she was uh, making the banner for this for to, for this episode yeah. um, that we have on the website, when she ty- typed in "Total Recall," what was the second thing that popped up? The three-breasted woman. That's right. <laughs> That's what people want to see. It does bring home. I think one of the big problems with this film, though, is that there are a lot of scenes in it that are essentially identical to the original film but just not as well handled you think so i think so i think that they're just not um the impact of a lot of those scenes is lost and it could be because i've seen them before but just because because of the pedestrian way in which that those scenes are directed any any of the scenes from the original film that are recreated here are recreated in a pretty lackluster kind of way and unfortunately all the stuff that they do add isn't as good as what's in the original film. I just thought, if we're comparing to the original film, I think this one's it's lost the ambiguity the the original film had, where you were never quite sure whether he was still at Recall or whether he was in real life. Whereas this one's pretty cut and dry. Yeah, I agree with that. Look, I don't think that the original film is quite the classic that David says it is. <laughs> I, I, I see do... you at the party, Victor. I do, I do love watching the film. I think it's, I think it's a thoroughly entertaining movie. So I am a fan. But um, one of the things that I did love about it was the philosophical questions it poses about the nature of memory and what is real. Yeah, and does it really does it really pose that many philosophical well, questions? The original. Let's face it. Well, the, I mean, you never really know for sure whether it's a dream or not. But that's really all it is. But that in itself is posing a major question. I mean, is what he is experiencing real or is it a memory implanted fantasy actually then, you know, leads you to then question other aspects of, of memory. And I think as Crystal has pointed out very well, um, this film actually does completely miss the point of that philosophical question that is at least in some way posed in the previous film. 
Um, I think that actually gets back to um, the problems with the plot. In the original film, and I, was, I actually watched this um, last night in anticipation of watching the remake. The original film, if you watch the first act, it's a, it actually was a very steady clip, you know, pace, whereas in this one, dream sequence with no real sort of nature of exotic or, you know, interest into lackluster relationship with Laurie to lots of sort of rambling, talking about essentially meaningless stuff. It takes a very long time for him to actually get to recall itself. Mm. And that's where the ambiguity gets gets lost a bit. It gets it they labour the point that, you know, he has these sort of strange feelings about other things, you know, sitting in the bar, going, Oh, I wish I played the piano which then has a payoff later on, but it actually doesn't get to the important bit. The main reason that it is there's really no doubt that it's not a dream mm. is because when he's at recall, they stop the process before it even starts. Like they plug him in the chemicals about to about to go into his arm, mm. and the guy specifically says, mm. Harold, the Harold and Kumo guy. You just mm. let's face it, you can't take that guy seriously. Um, but essentially well, says, stop it before it gets into his bloodstream. Mm. And so that's it. So you know the process has never actually occurred, mm. and so it's not a dream at all. He always was a secret agent. Even if you suspend disbelief at that point, thinking, mm. oh, maybe it did go in, and this is the, his new reality. He's thinking now. They have a scene of Laurie and, and all the. Um, police officers and she's where, where he's nowhere in sight so she's there's a scene without him where she's still in that reality directing the police officers and talking to the chancellor which is still within that reality so therefore that must be what's happening i mean how he couldn't possibly know what's going on there so we can't yeah. be in his head good point and, and i mean and in the original film i mean he wakes up from being unconscious like mm. the process begins yeah. he wakes up craps hit the fan Mm. So, I mean, that's why the first film does it so much better, in my opinion. I agree, mm. I agree with Richard. That there is amb- ambiguity there. There is mm. a possibility that it could actually be a dream. And, you know, I don't think it delves that much into the philosophical nature of it. I mean, essentially, it's just it's a dumb action movie. It doesn't really give you that much in terms of brains. But the action happens after the recall incident. The yeah. action doesn't happen when he's at recall. Um, guns don't start firing until yeah. he gets attacked. Attacked by his co-worker in the Arnold, yeah. in, in the Arnold, in the Arnie version. Whereas here, Glenn Wiseman states quite clear up front: we are just we've got no brains at all. <laughs> um, we are just more interested in you know guns being fired and how cool it would be if Colin Farrell looked like Jason Bourne. But we'll actually show you what Jason Bourne might look like if they slowed the camera down in the Bourne films. Um, <laughs> That's good. That, I mean, that is one positive. At least he knew what was going on you in this see, film. You, you could see <laughs> the choreography. It was nice to actually see the choreography in the yeah. fight. The choreography was okay. But from that, that point on, it just becomes an endless chase sequence. There is no stop where he go, where he actually does the spy stuff, which Arnie does. Arnie gets into the secret agent stuff quite early on. Yeah. He, he discovers who he is, gets told, he gets told he's um, Hauser, and then gets to Mars, and we go from there. Whereas here, there's a lot of running around being chased. It seemed a bit out of order. Yeah. You make a good point about Quaid not really actually doing much of anything. Mm, yeah. He's in in the original film at least he's able to track people down. Mm. He's able to find his way to to Quato. He's able to you know bit piece things together. Yeah. And I mean it's Arnie who's not exactly an intellectual giant, but mm. the way that they present him in the film is at least enough that you can see that he's a skilled agent whereas here really for the most part, Colin Farrell just gets led around yeah. for things. Well, they're, 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 I mean, there's, it basically culminates in that cool scene with the piano, 
mm. um, which I thought was pretty cool. But one, once again, it's, that's the, the only time that he ever actually seems to think about something, whereas every other time it's just, go here, do this, do this, do this, do this, and he, he's very reactive. Mm. But in that scene as well, he just gets told stuff. Yeah. Um, there is actually no discovery on his part. Yeah. Um, well, he discovers the piano bit. He discovers the piano. He discovers the piano bit, but then doesn't that doesn't actually lead him to, into being the so-called world's greatest spy? Yeah. Because we get told. Well, he never, by, no, no, no. He's never actually specifically said the world's greatest spy. No, but he's, 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 the, he's the world's greatest intelligence agent, and, and they and always that suck. And that he's a genius at what he does, <laughs> but we never actually get to. Uh, get to see the possibility of that. I understand, okay, he's meant to be, Douglas Quaid is meant to be a different person to Carl Hauser. Yeah. Um, that, that's been the point of the entire story all along. But you want to see an element of that. You want to see a bit of creativity and, and, and ingenuity. Yeah. Um, and he never really do. I, I mean, unlike, unlike you guys, I'm uh, a bit of a game player. I just been, for me, it was essentially just, it was like watching the CG section of a game. Mm. which is you know not necessarily a bad thing you can get some really cool ones mm. um, but that's really all it was it was very game like and I think that's what Len Wiseman was bringing to it anyway he's, yeah. I think he's a game person as well the the initial chase sequence where Laurie's chasing him from the platform to platform yeah. at the at the point just before the end of Act 1 all I could think of was this looks like an 80s platformer you know <laughs> Super Mario jumping from platform to platform that, that, it actually looks like it's shot like that and I've seen other films where ha- where a similar sort of action is occurring, but they at least go for points of view and you know various various angles and long shots and wide shots to differentiate. So you get caught, you get involved in the moment itself, and you never actually do here. Really, no. I didn't mind it. Yes, the, the scene going across the road was a bit frogger. Frogger, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I actually I quite liked the chase the chase sequence, and the, one of the reasons why I liked it is the design of the city itself. So um, the visual, the visual design, I think, for this film is magnificent. Mm. Um, it's it's got some very original type type ideas. Uh, the fact that I mean, the colony, all of Australia now is essentially a giant city, which is amazing. And the way the city is constructed is very very cubism, <laughs> like you know, apartment blocks that look like they're from you know the slums of Rio, um, but uh, seem to be suspended in space. Mm. And uh, and the the fall itself, I thought, was just an amazing concept. Yeah, the look, the production design here was magnificent. It was the one thing I think in the film that actually really stood out. Mm. The the sets, the costume designs, they look brilliant. Um, there is a little bit of uh, we'll call it referencing um, of other films like Blade Runner. Also, there was a bit of Minority Report in the flying police car chase bit. That, um, but overall. The production design, I thought, was the real standout feature here. I just really wish that they'd taken that brilliant production design and actually put it to another story. Mm. Like, rather than rather than rehashing Total Recall again, why not take this world that they've created and this fantastic production design they've got and tell a completely different mm. story with it? Because it's the only thing, really, that stands out in the film. Because the, product, the beauty of the production design isn't just that it looks good. It actually suggests that interesting things happen yeah. in this world. That there are, you know, that, that beneath the, the fog and the shadows and the waterways and in the boats, there's something else going on. And you just never got to see that. Well, I agree. The production was very good. I didn't see anything in this that created uh, its own unique look. It was, it was very derivative. It was very derivative. It was a, oh, it's just like you said. It was um, very Blade Runner. 
lots of other stuff in it. Most films, when you watch them, have their own unique look and feel to them. This one didn't. It just it looked like a lot of other stuff we've seen mm. before. Science fiction's greatest hits. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's really my response to this film. I just yeah. thought some of the best bits from Total Recall, Matthias from I Am Legend, a Minority Report, and several others that I just can't think of off the top of my head. And I just thought this is not a, not a story in and of itself, not a film in and of itself. It's just you know science fiction films' greatest hits. It's mm. The things that we've gone from taken from other films and we've put them together in a general mishmash and hope that people pay money to see it. One of the bits that I actually quite liked as far as the production design goes was actually Recall itself. It's almost like they're presenting it like an old school opium den. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, you go there, you get plugged in and you have you, you take this high where your memories are replaced. I mean, it's really, yeah, it's, it's like a turn of the century, you know, Chinatown opium den. And I liked that visual. It was well done. And once again, though, as we've sort of said with other things, it suggests something more mm. that isn't delivered. But that's because they rush through the, the recall stuff. They rush through that scene without really stopping to focus on much of anything just so they can get to the next action sequence. Yeah. So you don't really get a feel for much of, of what recall is like, what it's about, why it even looks like an opium den. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about uh, character development. I mean, it's, it's basically, it is a reboot. Have they handled the characters in any di different sort of way, better or worse? Worse. Far worse. There is one thing in this film that annoyed me more than anything else, and I think it has to do with the fact that the director is married to Kate Beckinsale. <laughs> because he spends all this time showing us how badass Kate Beckinsale is, and trying to present her as at least some sort of character, to the, really to the detriment of Jessica Biel, who has no personality, we find out nothing about her other than that she's hung around with Quaid at one point. Um, she's just she's just such a nothing character. And I think it's because he's spending so much time going, look at how cool my wife is, that he's neglected the character that is meant to be the main female character in the movie. Yeah, but she is cool, though. <laughs> did you not at least find her cool? Look, I mean, at I, first... I, think she, I think she did a far better job than Sharon Stone did. Sharon Stone was a character with that you know helped progress the plot a little bit. Yeah, he's trying to make Kate Beckinsale the main bad guy. Yeah, right? mm. even so much so that Cohagen isn't even a character in this film. Mm. Well, he's combined he's combined Laurie with um, Richter. Richter. Yeah. So they've combined the two characters. But uh, but unfortunately, the main female character is then completely neglected. Melinda mm. doesn't really do much in the original film either. But she has a personality. Mm. You learn a bit about her. You find out her history with Quaid. She's actually doing stuff to help him out. Like, she's she's not just... Jessica Biel is just there to fire some guns and get rescued and have no story. My biggest problem with those two is, is why cast the two female leads that look almost the same? I mean, they could have been appointed at where uh, you know, he... Because... Uh, she was his girlfriend in the previous life and so it might make it more easy for him to accept her as his wife maybe but I just found it confusing because it, when the dream sequence at the start I thought when he woke up and that was his wife I thought well hang on wasn't that her <laughs> fair enough and then by the end of it well after I'd worked out the difference by the end of it I just wanted to slap Kate back in saddle because the way she kept storming around and flicking her hair everywhere and look at me I'm so tough it's just calm down with me <laughs> Where's the sister, the sisterly bond? You should be yeah. rooting for her. It's just, no? it's just very two dimensional. Okay. 
Well, I think that does come back to the point. There's just so much is focused on Kate Beckinsale that she actually does start to get on your nerves. Because once you accept, yes, that she does kick butt and, you know, she's quite cool, there's really not much more to it than that. Yeah. And without focusing on any of the other characters to help progress the story, she gets on your nerves after a while. This is my biggest problem with the, um, the film, which is that characterization all across the board is quite flat. You mentioned Cohagen being, um, who's the bad guy, being neglected. And we've talked about um, Melina and Laurie, but Quaid himself is actually not that interesting. Mm. That's, that's, the big, that's the big problem. Your main character is not interesting. I don't care about his story, and I should be. I'm, a bi- I'm big on character-driven plot and character-driven stories and characters driving the action. And all he does is run and jump and chase and get pushed around from one end and make no firm stand. And you go, right, that's enough. And come up with nothing himself. That's interesting. Yeah. Why the hell does he not come up with a better plan than what he does What he does at the end? Yeah. In fact, why, does it, why don't any of the characters have anything sorted out? Why has Matthias not got his end game scenario in play that they can enact? Yeah. Well, that's because Matthias is nothing in this film. And neither is Cohagen. So Cohagen's plan makes no sense. And <laughs> it's a complete waste oh. of really good actors <laughs> to not give them anything at all to work with. And Bill Nye shows up for, what, two minutes? Yeah. Uh, Brian Cranston shows up for a couple of scenes. One which is quite good, but it means nothing because they've done nothing with him for two-thirds of the film. Um, it's just a total, total waste of good actors. And by not creating good villains, you've got really nothing. Mm. No good heroes, no good villains. But nothing for the audience to actually get behind and root for. Mm. Yeah, that, That's the good sort point. of thing. It's all pretty visuals, but there's no actual substance to it because mm. there's nothing to the characters, which there is in the original. And one last point. Why go through this complex... You know, creating false identities for him and having him infiltrate and bringing identities back and all of that sort of stuff if there are no mutants in the world and so therefore no psychic powers which is kind of part of why they go through it in the first film is because the mutants have you know certain abilities you know open your mind that sort of stuff so creating this sort of Quaid character is a good way to have somebody like that infiltrate an organisation where his mind or at least his emotions could be read you completely subvert his personality. In this film, there's really no reason for such a complex plan. That's a good point too. And in the first film, um, you get to see a bit more of the uh, Hauser character and how the Quaid character sort of rebels against that and, and says, no, I don't want to be like him. This film kind of glosses over that. Mm. Yeah. In an attempt to make it not like the original, they've decided that you know they've got to make it more complicated. Yeah but they strip it of any real interest. Yeah. Um, and that's... This was a Christopher Nolan film. Because that's what I kept thinking of. I kept thinking of, if this was a Christopher Nolan film, this would be full of mind tricks and mind games, and one would be playing off the other. But it's a mindless action film, so there's nothing else to it. Well, it tries to do the, the Christopher Nolan stuff by having the elaborate plot to get him to Matthias. But Richard's right. Just, there's absolutely no point to it. There were... Mm. Pl- I, I, during the course of that film, I thought of five different other ways to get the result that he wanted. And, I, I, and it's, all of them wouldn't have taken having an undercover agent pretend, pretend to be his exactly. wife and all this sort of rubbish. It just, it just didn't make any sense. Mm. 
It's just, I mean, the, the, I mean, the first one, I mean, like we just said, I mean, the whole point of having the alter, alternate identity was to be able to block him from psychic program and get him into succeed, you know, Quarto. It just, exactly it's, it's right. bizarre. Um, I just want to point out, because we were comparing this one to the original quite heavily, and mm. it's going to sound like we're not letting this one stand on its own. Um, I just want to point out that this one doesn't stand on its own because it directly references in certain key scenes like where the guy tells Quaid, you know, this is all a dream. Yeah. It quite specifically references the original film anyway. So it doesn't yeah. ju- it doesn't st- it doesn't it isn't given the opportunity to stand on its own like other remakes have been. I mean that's I, I really felt that during the film as well. It's like I'm 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 a bit of a cinema junkie, so I I I got quite a kick out of the you know, the, the two weeks reenactment mm. and uh, that sort of stuff. And I, I quite like the referencing. But I totally understand what you're saying. It's just, I mean, when we when we sort of reviewed The Amazing Spider-Man, right, mm. and we compared it to the original films, mm. that was that was fair because the, the Spider-Man 1 and The Amazing Spider-Man are two different mm. entities. Yeah. You know? I mean, they have a couple of things that are similar, but that's because it's the same story, essentially. Mm. Whereas this goes out of its way to have the cool referencing, which is fun for the audiences, but then makes you think. Well, then it, it, it once again is why bother remaking it? It didn't need to be remade if you're going to keep referencing the original film. Make you make it your own story. It's basically it's inviting you as a viewer to make that comparison. That's really what the problem is. Yeah, at the exactly. End of the day. That scene that Luke mentioned too, when they, they were trying to tell him he was still in recall, made no sense when we knew that he wasn't in recall. Like, there wasn't any ambiguity there at all. You're totally on the money. Because there was no ambiguity from the start, that scene was completely pointless. There was no drama to that scene because we knew. Yeah. There was actually no drama to any that's of true. the recreated <laughs> scenes. Um, the, 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 and, and that's once again when you're inviting comparison and you take these scenes and you recreate them, but you recreate every single one of them worse than the original film <laughs> then obviously that comparison is not going to be favourable <laughs> two weeks the ambiguity of that scene come, in the original comes from the fact that it's just Quaid Stone and um, the Doctor whose name I can't remember in by themselves mm. in this one he's in a lobby with Jessica Biel hundreds of people hundreds of people so and, again and the ambiguity is actually gone yeah I don't, I don't want to give too much of that scene away, but it's just, I mean, that whole scene became completely pointless to me when um, she proves that he's wrong. So when Jessica Biel characters proves that the, um, Harry is wrong, and then his response to that is, oh, she, I'm, only, I'm only lying because you want me to lie, hmm. that he says to Doug. And it's like, come on, man. It's, that is the worst circular logic I've ever heard. It is clumsy writing, and it's done to try and actually have that scene in yeah. but try to justify why you've put that scene in and unfortunately they've just come up with this clumsy way of doing it. So I guess that sort of leads into our final thoughts is, is that up until that point I was actually quite enjoying this film for the dumb action film that it was. So I was like okay well this is mindless sort of stuff, it's very CG, you know, very computer gamey I'll just kick back, I'll enjoy it, I'll sort of like the references until that scene mm. up until that scene it was okay and then I was like this is the most ridiculously shoehorned bit of plot I've ever seen to try and make sense of a plot that doesn't make sense anyway. And I was cool with it not making sense up until that point. I was like, okay, it doesn't make sense, but that's fine. That can be a bad, good film, if you know what I mean. But, up, but after that point, I just, it just lost completely lost real interest for me. Yeah, unfortunately, too many remakes um, in the modern era try to shoehorn scenes in. They're, if you're going to recreate these stories, 
fine, but make them their own entities. Mm. Don't try to shoehorn in other scenes from you know previous versions, but in ways that don't actually work. Or better yet, just not remake these stories. Yeah. <laughs> and well, and, and yeah. take... I mean, I actually want the guys... I mean, I don't know who they are, but whoever you are, legends, the production team, to go off, get some better writers, and make a film of their own. Yeah. You know, even if it's set in the same universe. I'm cool with that. I mean, the film looked cool. Just have an original story to go with it. And have no lens flare. Well, let me get to the lens flare. <laughs> I don't want to go on too much of a nerd range, nerd range here, but at what point did it become socially acceptable... In, in films to have not only not only to allow lens flare to occur like natural lens flare but to CGI create it and, and not only to have lens flare but to have lens flare in like every second shot it's like there's about 300 examples of lens flare in this film it's got even more than than Star Trek did. It's insane. It's like every single shot has lens flare. And it's across the actors' faces. Yeah. It's like across the whole sc- whole screen. And quite clearly some of it is I, fate. I think he just thought it looked cool and so he did it. It's so annoying. Yeah. But doesn't it make you feel like you're actually there instead of, you know, just watching a film, you're actually there part of the action, watching real live events happen? Well, only somebody wearing glasses would see that amount of lens flare. So anybody yeah. who was really there and really part of the action who wasn't wearing bifocals wouldn't have been seeing that insane amount of lens flare. Yeah. I mean, it was so much of it. They actually expected some of them to be going, to, like some of the actors, like characters, to be going, oh, look, oh, I'm sorry, I, I can't... I, th- that's the reason why they couldn't shoot straight, because there was so much light in their eyes. Nerd rage! <laughs> you just went on the biggest nerd rage it's ever. It's so frustrating! Mm. Oh, anyway, is. whatever. That's that's my huge, my biggest bugbear, obviously. I'll calm down now, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, people. <laughs> Perhaps we should go through scores. <laughs> I think we've torn this one to pieces pretty well. Okay, scores. Richard. Look, I'll give this one and a half entirely for its production design, which was just stunning. Look, I give this one for practically the same reasons, nothing else, and my goodness, why did they put Dan O'Bannon's name on at the end? Why did they put Dan O'Bannon's name on the because end? Because they ripped off half his script, that's why. <laughs> yeah, they've just stolen all of the good scenes from his script, so... <laughs> Some sort of legal requirement to put his name there. I think if you're going to take that much and you're going to do it word for word, yeah. Yeah. the same, yeah, you've got to, got to acknowledge Dan O'Bannon. Unfortunately, you know, all it does is reveal that you know, Dan O'Bannon is a good screenwriter, and the rest of the people involved in this aren't. Crystal? I'll give this a two. Um, yeah, well, I'll give it uh, two as well, um, and mainly for the same sort of reasons. The production design was awesome, and like I said, up until that particular point, I was actually enjoying myself in a dumb movie, action movie sort of way. But then it was really, really bad. Uh, so that's it for Total Recall. Don't bother seeing it. <laughs> Don't listen to us. Make up your own mind. <laughs> no, listen to us. <laughs> I'm going to get you, Queen! <laughs> Actually, it would be really very, very interesting in, in hearing people's opinions. I mean, check it out. It'll be unduly harsh. I mean, some people might, might like that sort of stuff. I have a guilty, a guilty uh, pleasure in watching the first Underworld film. Another Len Wiseman production art. Coming up next, Dust Jacket. <laughs> Well, for this dust jacket, we're uh, once again handing the reins over to another member of the crew because, you know, apparently my review's just not good enough. Isn't that right, guys? Yeah, so there... Okay, sorry. 
He's on Captain Dust Jacket. <laughs> so, so, you know, the, the fire up, and then, you know, when you realise that he was wrong. <laughs> no, just that I'm probably going off on a rant for no reason. Um, we handed uh, the last Dust Jacket review over to Crystal. Which was, um, worked out really well. It did. It worked out so well, we actually got feedback from the author herself, Christine Catherine Rush. So. That's cool. It is cool. Hopefully, we could maybe score something like that again in the future. But unfortunately, for all the cultural lights out there, we're handing it over to David instead. So I'm just warning mean. you in advance. <laughs> Why is everybody so mean to me? Oh, boohoo. <laughs> so, David, you've chosen Anno Dracula. It's actually the first non science fiction book. Yeah, so it's, it's actually a horror novel, which is something different for us. And uh, if it goes well, I think we can uh, maybe cover some more horror stories in the future, but... Um, oh, the horror! <laughs> but um, I'm actually going to kick back, relax, and take it easy dude style. <laughs> and uh, hand the reins over to David. David, Anno Dracula, this was your choice. Let us know why. I don't know, your rant was kind of undude. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being very undude right now. It's more Walt, really, wasn't it? <laughs> Alright, it's my turn now, people. Yes, Anna Dracula is a 1992 novel by British writer Kim Newman. Uh, it's the first in the Anna Dracula series. Kim Newman uh, is, is written a whole heap of stuff, uh, and he also does reviews for Empire Magazine. Uh, it's an alternate history story uh, set in 19th century England, uh, which uses uh, real-life people from that era, as well as fictional people from that, from that era and other eras, and sort of mouths them together in a sort of a League of Extraordinary Gentlemen sort of way, uh, which is why later on we'll be covering the World Newton Universe, because it basically it, it uses that concept. The main characters are Jack the Ripper and his hunters, Charles Barragard, who is an agent of the Diogenes Club, and Genevieve... You could be pronounced Judon, but I'd say Judon. Okay, cool. Awesome. Um, uh, who's a 400-year-old uh, vampire uh, from, originally from France who still looks 16. Anna Dracula actually began life as the novel of Red Rain, uh, which was first published in uh, the 1992 edition of the Mammoth, Mammoth Book of Vampires, uh, which is why I first come across it, um, and has been followed uh, by two further novels in the series and a num number of short stories and novellas. And it was recently uh, re-released uh, in a fancy new edition with annotations at the back and a whole bunch of special features. It's like a DVD version, novel DVD with uh, special features and stuff, so... I do like the line here on the cover from the sick and deranged mind of Mr. Kim Newman. <laughs> <laughs> it has a high praise from Neil Gaiman, who uh, was actually helpful in getting the book uh, going and and contributed some ideas to it. Um, so he's uh, obviously a big fan, and he was originally going to co-author the book as well. But uh, but it does have a Gaimanish feel to it. Yeah, it's, it's, it is. It all it is all new Kim Newman. Um, it has won uh, the Dracula Society Children of the Night Award. Which, you know, justifiably so, the Dracula Society. <laughs> the fact that there even is a Dracula Society is kind of cool. Uh, the Lord Ruthven Assembly's Fiction Award and the International Horror Guild Award for Best Novel. Uh, and it was also shortlisted for the Bram Stoker Award for Best Novel. So the plot is basically, what if Van Housing and his crew failed to stop Count Dracula during the events of Bram Stoker's Dracula novel? And that's it, in a nutshell, essentially. So Dracula survives bests his opponents, uh, marries the recently widowed Queen Victoria, turns her into a vampire, and then proceeds to take over England, which was what was his plot was in the original story anyway. 
And uh, so because of that, uh, vampires are now come out into society. So it's a pretty true blood sort of situation where uh, vampires are now known to exist. They're not hidden in the shadows. Um, and because of that, the vampires of the world sort of flock to Dracula's banner and uh, either, you know, either for him or against him. But regardless, they still they come to England or at least now come out into society and proudly proclaim themselves to be vampires and, and uh, proceed to enact... Dracula's plan to take over the world, starting mm. with England, which is the seat of the world at the time. The plot, though, is, is essentially uh, Jack the Ripper's uh, murders um, and the people who are either who either want to help him or hinder him. Um, so uh, the, the before-mentioned Charles and Genevieve want to stop what he's doing because uh, of the horrible nature of it all. But there are some people who are in, in the government that take the, the opportunity that the murders pre, uh, present in order to further their own you know, their own ends. Now the twist is that I mean Jack the Ripper is uh, is killing vampires. So he's he's a, a human male um, who is killing vamp is killing the vampire victims in order to wipe out their their sort of blot on society. Unfortunately, though, vampires uh, in in that sort of era of England, uh, vampires have sort of found a natural sort of niche. I mean, Whitechapel uh, is just scum, <laughs> and uh, and so they've. They've sort of fit right in, basically, and uh, it's now it's now become cool to be a vampire mm. because only vampires are going to progress in society, and so people, uh, sort of the, the elite of, of British society at the time, um, are basically scrambling over themselves in order to become vampires and live forever and you know and and rule the world. Mm. I chose this book because uh, I'm obviously a huge fan. I mean, it goes without saying that uh, I'm going to give it five out of five, but it's, I mean, obviously, I chose it because. When I first read the the novel Red Rain, I was just I was blown away by um, the the meshing, the sort of I, I didn't know what the Wald Newton universe concept was at that point. I, I'd never know, never heard of it before, but of course I knew about crossovers and stuff like that, you know, mm. Tarzan and and you know Doc Savage and that sort of stuff. But even you know Superman and versus Spider Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the concept of cross crossovers are nothing new to me, mm. um, but I'd never seen. Um, sort of that sort of amalgamation of, of uh, real life and literal uh, literary characters sort of together in mm. the same sort of universe done the way that this was done and it is um, it is basically one of the first uh, books to do that yeah what, what this novel does I think what you're trying to get at is that it just incorporates so many different literary characters from mm. so many different sources so basically Kim Newman's bringing just all of the characters of the era together in the one story mm. When you, it's sort of the natural inclination to when you first read is to sort of sort of pick through and sort of mm. and sort of you know marvel in your own your own nerdism and how how many characters you can actually identify and stuff like that. And I have to admit, the first the first time I read it, like I said, I was blown away by the concept and and sort of I sort of picked through and sort of you know picked out who I who I knew and, and it would research later on um, who I didn't know and stuff. And the new edition actually comes with uh, annotations to sort of describe the characters and there's myriads of websites that you know all the characters and who they are and all sort of stuff, um, who they're referencing to. But I've got to say, is the first time was actually kind of distracting. So I didn't really get into the story. Uh, like so, like I said, it was the novel and the Red Rain at the time. So it, I didn't really get into the story all that much the first time because I was too busy picking out who these people were. Once I'd done that, <laughs> I then went back and read the story again and was just and was then blown away by the actual story itself. So it was it was then eventually um, expanded into the novel and a Dracula, uh, which I then had to because it was there by the time I uh, got around to, to reading it it wasn't 1992 it was actually some years later and it was then out of print and like I've mentioned in previous episodes I had to buy a, 
uh, yeah, quite expensive eBay copy. Uh, but now I have my new, my brand new, uh, fancy new edition, so I'm, pre I'm pretty excited. Um, and once again, I was just blown away by the concept. I guess I don't want to be harsh and say that it's, it's really, it's nothing new now. I mean, the whole concept of, you know, vampires out in the world and, and you know, Jack the Ripper may or may not be a vampire is, you know, and, and, you know, sort of literary characters getting together. It's, I mean, it's been done uh, quite a number of times now. But at the time, um, it really was quite marvellous and, and fresh and, and new. The writing style is is quite interesting. It sort of it has a sort of uh, Penny Dreadful sort of style to it uh, with sort of modern touches as well. But it's, it has, it's, it's a number of short, short and sweet chapters which don't always... The next chapter doesn't always correspond with the previous chapter. There are things that ha there are events that happen in between chapters. Like you don't get to see everything that Charles does mm. in his investigations. Uh, you just get to see what really needs to be happened. And there's so many plots going on that that, that, that format that format works well because of the of the different plots. Is sort of you you go each uh, certain chapters would deal with certain with certain different parts of the plot in order to meld it together. Which is also a thing of the Penny Dreadfuls themselves, because the Penny Dreadfuls, initially when they were being serialised, would have one writer one week, another writer the next week, yeah. another writer probably the week after, and so each chapter would probably focus on someone different whilst someone towards the end worked out what the hell was going on in yeah. the story to begin with to try and tie it up. So that sort of works to... Yeah. The, the initial Penny Dreadful style. Yeah, and each, yeah. each chapter can be read individually. Yeah, I like um, I like that, how each chapter felt like its own individual little story and it sort of concluded, yeah. rather than leaving it as a cliffhanger, because just from purely personal preferences, I can then sit the book down, go off and do something else, and then come back to it later. Yeah. I understand what uh, Newman is trying to achieve in that regard, but for me I found that um, at points the, the book actually, as a novel loses its focus a bit right. and some of the some of the chapters sort of the deviation chapters really i don't think they add anything to the story or to the characters in any way so there were a few a few times where it just deviated to me it seemed at least for the sake of deviation um whereas i was kind of wanted them to sort of get back to focusing a bit more yeah. on charles genevieve. genevieve or dr seward yeah fair enough there's there's quite a lot of pl uh, well, quite a lot of plots happening mm. But um, some some of them, I guess, some of them aren't really plots per se. Some yeah, of them they're just a little. Stuff. They're more like just a little short story about a character. Yeah, yeah. But there's no real follow through. So I guess the best example of that is um, the vampire guard Kostaki um, and Mackenzie, the Scottish police officer, who sort of yeah. stumble onto the conspiracy and sort of go off into their own sort of little investigations sort or of stuff, mm. which I thought was cool, but it's not really relevant. But see, see, the problem with that is that we've already got them to be having an investigation yeah. into what's going on. My big problem with the novel is that it takes a long time for things to happen. Genevieve and Beauregard actually don't do a hell of they, they, they talk a lot. Yeah. And you've got that great scene with um, Beauregard in with the crime cabal, you know, Moriarty, Fu Manchu, yeah. which, I, which is my favourite scene, but it's my favourite scene more because it's, you know, Fu Manchu and Moriarty and the Invisible mm -hmm. Man and Raffles. Yeah. And plus, you know, McSeath and Sykes. Yeah. The, the, the coolness of them, them all coming together to form a cabal, that, that's sort of what made it the favourite, whereas the story potentials of that chapter weren't followed through. Yeah. Um, and that's my big problem with a lot of what yes. Anno Dracula is. There's a lot of Genevieve and Beauregard talking about needing to find the Ripper and the importance of needing to find the Ripper, 
but very little in the way of actual detective work. Yeah. It takes Charles all, does a lot of walking around. They do a lot of walking around <laughs> and, and that's really my that that's one of the key issues I think I have with this. Um, the other key issue I have is being told up front who the Ripper is. Right. So yeah, so I didn't say that during the the intro plot uh, introduction thing, but yeah, so the Ripper you know who the Ripper is right from the start. Right from the start. Um, yeah. So it's 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 Doctor Jack Seward. Yeah, uh, from Dracula. Yeah, and it's it's a good choice, I think. I, I, I it's I, I like the fact that it's him. It all makes it all makes sense it, to me. It's a logical choice. Yeah, it's a logical choice. It's in and it makes a lot of sense. And even in in the novel Dracula, he's already shown to be a bit unbalanced. Mm. The events of Dracula yeah. throw him throw him off a yeah. bit. Yeah. He's already a drug taker and and all sort of stuff. So it all makes perfect sense to me. And his name's um, Jack. And his name's Jack. Yeah, so so you don't like you don't like the fact that you know who he is right from the start. It, so, rob, it robs uh, it robs the novel of a certain amount of mystery to carry it through. Given that the main character is trying to find the guy, it robs them. It robs the story of the mystery that it needs hmm. to drive it forward. It means that the audience can't question what's going on. We just sit there going, right? Why the hell haven't Genevieve or Beauregard worked this out well before now? Yeah, that's that's only one. Of, that's one of my few negative aspects of this book. Hmm. Um, is the fact that Charles, who is, is portrayed as a very intelligent man, mm. very capable man, mm. an agent of the Empire, mm. and Genevieve is 400 years old and has the ability to read people's Monitor. thoughts mm. limitedly. Yeah. But and, still. And, and works very closely with him. Yeah, and works with Jack. Mm. And, and there's the, the... Can't figure it out. Yeah. Is it the constable or someone who actually does realise there's something wrong with Jack, but Genevieve doesn't see it? Oh yeah the, yeah, the other worker, the, the other worker, worker at, at, at Toynbee yeah. Hall. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. He says something's off because because he, he thinks it's off because of his relationship with the vampire. Yeah, but he he knows. But something he knows wrong. something's going on. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, so that's that to me is is probably my only negative aspect of the book. I think, but I agree. I I, I understand what you're saying about how he probably should have known who Jack Ripper was from the start. Yeah, but I don't mind that. I, mean, I don't mind I, that. Either. I thought, I thought yeah. it was pretty cool. If if a bit um, of mystery probably would have been a bit. If, is it and that the whole, being told who the Ripper is right from the start can work, but there's got to be more going on in the plot. Yeah, and if Genev- and Beauregard and Genevieve are the main characters, yeah, and because they don't do a lot for quite a long time, mm-hmm. and even when they do finally meet up, um, still not a lot happens. Newman's created an interesting world, and I'll give him credit for that. The world building is is, is immense, um, but because Charles and Genevieve sort of wander around, going, "Well, we should do something about the Ripper." Yeah, um, is robbed of its um, of its of its potential, and in certain places, kind of feels like very very well written fan fiction, because of the use of all these other literary elements and literary characters. The pow- the the power, and even just the general interest in the novel, sort of get, get gets all lost. I think um, just following on from that mm-hmm. point, the strength of this book, also, in some respects, is is the weakness of the mm-hmm. book. It is brilliantly researched, yeah, um, and not just from the literary perspective of bring all the literary characters, but from the perspective of the history of England at that point and um, the history of Jack the Ripper. In England at that point was at a really interesting political situation. There was a belief that once Victoria died, that the empire would collapse, mm. and that the the Jack the Ripper case actually did bring to the forefront um, the class structure and the class divide between the East End, uh, you know, huge poverty line and sort of the elite of the West End. Um, And Newman does a fantastic job, as you say, in creating the world and actually bringing vampirism into that. Um, And 
there's beautiful research done into uh, the Jack the Ripper case. Yeah. As somebody who's done a lot of research into that myself, clearly Newman has 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 done done the footwork in researching all of that. Yeah, he even brings in the fictional victim Lulu. Exactly. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Lulu Shawn. Yeah, which is pretty cool. Um, and and also references um, the possible other victims who are often just completely forgotten about. The earlier victims who are yeah. completely forgotten about usually in um, the sort of fictionalized versions of the Jack the Ripper stories. Yeah. Um, so he's done an absolutely fantastic job of that. But as as David was saying earlier, I found myself quite distracted by that in, in as far as the story itself goes because I was so sort of drawn into looking for those literary references and looking for the historical referencing as well and the world creation, which is all fantastic. Yeah, but I, I found that the actual story itself mm. with Charles and Genevieve just wasn't really progressing and that at times it seemed the book was almost being a little bit probably focusing too much on showing how clever it was yeah. in in its research that it was actually detracting a bit from the story especially early on i mean it does take well my version at least took 250 pages for charles and genevieve to come together and when they do come together or sorry 200 pages i should say when they do come together that's when i think the story really starts to pick up yeah. but it takes a very long time to get to that because it's spending a lot of time showing its world and i think it could have perhaps maybe had a slightly better balance between the two oh, i found the opposite i didn't mind that it took so long to build up to charles and genevieve but yeah, because because of all the world building you got immersed in the world and in the situation and the times and i didn't find all the literary and and real characters distracting i just found that sort of as a bonus to the story. I was reading the story and, oh, yes, I know that person, yes, I know that person, but didn't find it all that glaring or distracting. I was just interested in uh, wandering around London in that time and, and doing a bit of sightseeing, really. It was it was quite nice. And uh, I do agree with what David and Luke said about the Genevieve and um, Beauregard thing where they took them so long to figure out the, who Jack the Ripper was. That was my biggest bugbear as well. David asked me at one point, how's the story going? And I said, why is it taking them so long to figure out who it is? She's meant to have these mental powers and she works with him. How can she not know who it is? Um, <laughs> Sorry. Um, the, the, yeah, the, the, the mental powers thing is, it has been, I mean, she doesn't, she can't read everybody. Mm. Um, and he is, with his insanity, he is kind of closed off. So mm. I don't mind the fact that she doesn't know who he is straight away. Mm. But the fact that, it, I mean, Charles has got, the Diogenes Club behind him. He's got the cabal of criminals who have said, you know, we'll assist you. And I should just point out, a cabal of criminals consisting of... Some of the smartest people in the world. Fu Manchu <laughs> yeah. and Professor Moriarty. Yeah. So it's just... And and yet, you know, basically they discover it purely... Basically by mm. accident. Basically because one of the criminals, with his offhand comment that it's, you know, we, we, we thought it was the... We thought it was this guy. The guy that they eventually framed to be Jack the Ripper. Mm. Because he works... Uh, mm. Toynbee Hall mm. you know, and that's like the centre of all the crimes and they're like yeah. oh yeah you're right and then they go and they find the, they find the, the wax cylinders and stuff. Mm. it's, it's just, Montague Montague yeah. John Druitt Druitt is yeah. the person that they frame yeah. yeah yeah and the the great thing there is uh, Druitt was a real person and yeah. was and, actually a suspect yeah. um, and, in the Jack the Ripper crime so, yeah. um, and eliminated for the same reasons as what Beauregard says mm. yeah um, but I'm, I'm saying very... more of it's a combination of all of those he has all these resources mm. And it still basically takes an accident mm. for him to figure it out. 
And yet the real Jack the Ripper case, they had a lot of resources at hand. And granted, yeah. certainly not anything quite as cool as... <laughs> as but I mean, there was a there were criminal cabals yeah. at the time yeah. who were trying to find him. There was the... It's still unsolved. Well, we're talking, we're talking about solving it. I mean, basically, it, the major point of it is that during this time period, you, of course, have Sherlock Holmes, who exists in this period. And um, it's he's, he's disposed of in quite a neat way in order to get around the problem that mm. if he was in this time and... and available to, to assist mm. he would have figured it out in like the first chapter <laughs> so so there is a segment is a, a section in the book where he's uh, it's reported that Holmes has has uh, disagreed with the, with the new government has been sent to Devil's Dyke with... and that but and that's sort of one of my bugbears when they do some of these types of stories which is that when if when they go to great lengths to tell us that Holmes isn't involved for whatever reason I do sit there going okay if Holmes, Holmes isn't involved if there's a mystery going on you better make sure you give me one very good detective, one someone who's clever um, and smart, and not, not not genius level as Holmes is, but someone um, capable of carrying the story through. And Beauregard's not quite up to that. I've got to read out what Kid Newman says in the annotations here for that very reason. Yeah. Um, he says, as one critic pointed out, the reason as Holmes is removed to a concentration camp in Anno Dracula is to get around a problem I have with many Holmes Jack the Ripper stories. The great detective would have identified, trapped, and convicted the murderer before tea time. Yeah. Now, <laughs> the more I sort of thought about it, and the more I thought about the fact that they do mention the removal of Holmes, the more I realised that basically Newman is absolutely correct. Yeah. If Holmes had been in the story, it would have just been there would have been no mystery. There would have mm. been no story. Mm. And and to be honest with you, the fact that um, Charles isn't a great detective probably I'm, I'm cool does probably does work to the benefit of the yeah. story insofar but, as allowing for the story to continue. Yeah. Because if he had been the clever detective, he might have worked it out a lot quicker. But then you need some inherent drama on Charles's part. Yeah. And that's what and that's really what's lacking. The inherent drama mm. on. You get a, a, a little bit of a conflict between him and his um, fiance. Yeah. You know, she wants to be a vampire. Penny. Penny. She wants to be a vampire, but he doesn't. Yeah. Um, but and then you get, but the it's not sufficiently strong enough to um, sustain. The he, he's, he's never in, in in any danger. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the criminal yeah, cabal is basically going to keep yeah. him alive. There, there is no inherent drama in him trying to track down Jack the Ripper. Yeah. The drama yeah. is outside of that. Yeah. But then, so that sort of brings us. So that sort of brings us to the end. So it's, I mean, the the mystery, the you know, the supposed mystery, I suppose, mm-hmm. is is solved, and you know, Jack the Ripper's identity is revealed, and in uh, in a pretty neat little twist, I think. I mean, it's, I mean, they sort of, he so he t- sort of takes the the reality of what happens to poor Mary uh, Kelly. Uh, Kelly. Kelly. It's just it's horrific. Mm. That's the that's one of the very few times where actually where I've seen because I've seen the photo of the, the yeah. real event, and it's one of those rare times where I've actually thought. Oh, it is a harrowing photo to look at. There's no it, doubt about it. You know, it's just it's horrible, horrible stuff. So he sort of sort of incorporates that, and then you know the gold arming mm. sort of mm. you know Jack sort of confrontation is like so. Mm. So the two characters from the original story, mm. yeah. and he's in it, and she was you know just he, by this point he's just totally insane, mm. and just he's just horrified that that uh, Arthur is now a vampire mm. and quite a good one, and, mm. and he's. It just totally flips him right over the edge. It's 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 quite well done. I really really like it. Um, but then 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 of course you get the real reason to why Charles is on the case. Charles is on the case. So um, there's even a point where Charles is actually where he goes to he gets summoned to the Diogenes Club and he's like, oh look, I've got nothing to report, and they don't seem to care. And he's like, well, that's kind of weird. <laughs> you know what I mean? I've been on this for weeks. <laughs>
I, th- I thought it was awesome the final revelation of why he was put on the case. It actually then made sense to me mm. to the why nothing really happens with this guy. It's like he's meant to be the main character, but nothing really. He doesn't really do anything, mm. and that's purely just to put him, set him up for what happens at the end. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. As, I mean, it then it then mm. makes me think that. The actual, the main character of the, of the story is actually, is not him at all. No, it's Genevieve. It's, it's probably, Genevieve. It's probably Genevieve, but even... And, and Jack Stewart. Even so, um, more still needs to happen with Genevieve. Like I said, if the story itself had been a bit more involving, their, their side of things had been a bit more involving, the end, that, that little bit there wouldn't have jumped out at me so much. Hmm. Yeah, okay, so we won't, we won't give the actual ultimate end away because it's, uh, it's awesome. And yeah, it just leads up, leads up to that bit. It's pretty cool. It's a nice little elephant man cameo. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty cool. Um, yeah. So, like I said, like I said at the start, I'm obviously I picked I picked the book because it's one of my all time favourites, and uh, I'm obviously giving it five out of five looks. I mean, there is that one thing that you know, obviously that that I didn't quite agree with, but I think it's a, I think it's a pretty minor thing in 400 pages of awesomeness. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, five out of five, Josh. Well, I don't think it's 400 pages of awesomeness. So, like I said before, it's it's well written, and the world is interesting, but I did get bored. Um, I'm giving this two and a half looks. Okay. Um, at no stage did I get bored, actually. The, the weaknesses that Luke and Richo pointed out, I thought it was strengths. I don't, like I said before, I didn't mind that not a lot was happening. I was enjoying the sightseeing, absorbing the... Uh, conflict between the warm and the vampires and how that interplayed and worked I thought that was quite good um, so for that reason I give it a four I love the world building I love the was it Wald Newton yeah. approach um, I love the incorporation of uh, characters from literary sources and from the real world and I love the social commentary and the political commentary in the book I really just wish that been a bit more of a focus on actual storytelling to go with that um but look i'll still give it uh three and a half cool three and a half out of five yeah awesome well there you go i'm glad you uh, uh had the opportunity to to review well thank you for that <laughs> much appreciated um our next just jacket will be passing everything on to luke that's right so luke will be doing paradox Men. paradox men by charles l harness so we'll be we'll be back to science fiction, but if you if you enjoyed our uh, little horror take here, let us know, um, and maybe even give us some recommendations if you'd like to see us do some more horror stories. Let us know which ones appeal to you, and we'll see what we can go do from there. Awesome! All right, thanks, guys. Coming up next, roundtable. <laughs> Okay, so for this roundtable, we're going to be focusing on the Wald and Newton family. We've been uh, we've mentioned it quite a few times in uh, uh, earlier in the episode in terms of the review of Anna Dracula and just how it uses the the Wald Newton family concept uh, to bring its characters together. So uh, we thought we'd give you a bit of a bit of background on what it is. Uh, the the Wald Newton family is a is a literary concept derived from a form of crossover fiction developed by science fiction writer Philip Jose Farmer. Farmer's written. Uh, Oh, he's written a heap of stuff, but he basically he wrote two bio, two fictional biographies uh, called Tarzan Alive and Doc Savage, His Apocalyptic Life, um, which basically uh, deal with the fact that uh, that they that they are real people. So he, he expresses the fact that they're real. 
and that, that their histories are real. And it it's it's centered around the fact that the the meteorite that fell that fell in uh, Wald Newton in Yorkshire, England, uh, which really happened uh, in um, December 19, uh, 1795, uh, caused uh, mutations in a group of group of people who were around at that period. I think it was was it like a coach going by or something? I think it was, yeah, if yeah. I remember correctly. Yeah, and so the radiation plus, plus the some of the inhabitants of of the town of the town yeah, itself. Yeah, yeah. So basically, so those people who were around that area, it, it introduces genetic mutations, which then enhances them, um, not to Superman levels, but you know, to to so basically more intelligent, physically stronger, mm. um, and more importantly, long lived mm. um, sort of sort of stuff so like, like that. The, the Tunguska reaction in in yeah in the X Files. Yeah, 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 basically, yeah, the exact thing, yeah, um, yeah. So, uh, so, so, not only them, but also their their uh, descendants. Um, uh, what's also quite important is that it, it instills in them a drive to either be good or, or be bad, mm. a bit more than what the normal person is. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of a hard concept, I suppose. But if any, if you were a good person, you'd be like really good and yeah. sort of self sacrificing and stuff like that. And if you're a bad person, you'd be maniacal and mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and the mustache twirling type stuff. <laughs> um, so it's a fascinating concept. I actually, I'm, I, admittedly, I haven't actually read. Uh, I haven't read the Doc Savage one. I have read the Tarzan Alive one. Mm. They were kind of hard to get hold of. For a very during, long time during my period, and I've only got second-hand copies because, and I specifically had to go hunting for them. Yeah, um, I think they're being re-released fairly recently. Tarzan Alive, I know, has been released recently, yeah. but I kind of actually like the second-hand cop because I've got it's got a nice painted. Sometimes it's, there's cover. a lot to be said for the second-hand ones. I mean, I love my new edition of Anna Dracula. Don't get me wrong, I love it, but the my ridiculously expensive eBay copy has got this awesome vampire bat painting type thing on the front and, and like an interesting typeset and stuff. So other so other characters uh, that are included in sort of the farmer uh, family, mm. um, uh, you know, it, it, it's a huge roll call, but basically, you know, uh, Sherlock Holmes and mm. Moriarty and Solomon Kane and mm. Alan Quartermain and Fu Manchu and basically a whole bunch of people that appear in mm. Anna Dracula. <laughs> yeah, the, whole, the whole idea basically was what if there was some relationship between Tarzan and um, Sherlock Holmes to a certain degree, and he mapped out, or maybe not him per se, but others have mapped out a family tree yeah. for the Wild Newton universe. Yeah. So to show how where the bloodlines link, where the stories link. Yeah. There's some sort of slightly it, there's some interesting stuff that comes yeah. up. It's fascinating. Um, it's fascinating stuff, and it's and it's important. So the so the Philip Jose Farmer stuff is is specifically called the World Newton family because mm. they're the originals and the descendants. So mm. they are all related in some mm. way. Yeah. Right, so it, even if they're you know seven generations removed, they're yeah. still related in some way. Um, so uh, some of those characters have met King Kong, so were present mm. for the events of King Kong. Mm. King Kong is not a not a member of the family per se no. because he's not human, not human, yeah. so therefore mm. can't be. But he's still part of that sort of area. Mm. So that so that idea was uh, was used to quite great effect uh, in sort of like yeah, from like the pulps and yeah. Yeah, so the, the crossovers that you would get, and it, it was an idea that sort of fired a lot of people's imaginations. Mm. And, but then uh, the the Wild Newton universe is a term coined by Winscott Eckhart, who expands on Farmer's original idea and introduces basically the basic, in a nutshell the idea that anybody that's haven't had a crossover mm. is involved in some way in some way in the same fictional universe. Mm. So there are there are certain rules to exclude some things that wouldn't make a lot of sense. It's actually the rules. Uh, 
incredibly complex. And I, so I, I recommend that you check out um, Eckhart's uh, website, uh, which you'll have in the notes. It's actually uh, www.pjfarmer.com world, uh, forward slash world newton. Check it out. There's, there's quite a lot of uh, quite intricate rules to, for, for why certain stories aren't involved. Mm. But there is quite a lot that is. Yeah. Um, so his website was uh, published um, in novel form uh, called uh, Crossovers Volume 1 and 2 by uh, Black Coat Press, um, which I have, and uh, I'm very, very excited that I have. Uh, Anno, Anno Dracula has uh, an, an extensive bit in uh, Volume 2. Well, Kevin Newman does the introduction of Volume 1. Yeah, which it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. And, yeah, and, and like I said, that involves... Uh, involves the original family, then spread out to mm. basically anybody as a crossover. And it's got some cool, cool stuff. Mm. I suppose the thing we've got to get across here is it's about the... It's that sort of fanboy wish fulfillment, you know, the whole, the desire that all these things that we like and aspire to, they exist in some in some unfabricated form. They are real in some way. Yeah. And they all share that space. Yeah. That's, I think, what Philip Fizer Farm was getting to in the first... Thing that he does in Tars in Tarzan Alive is he tries to establish where that link does before Tar before Lord, what you know John Clayton Greystoke yeah. you know appears in the jungle you know being raised by the apes he establishes that Tarzan's dad was the the criminal who or the son of the criminal who was forced to flee after the events of the prior student yeah the the, the prior student. That the um, the son of the rich man who was behind the disappearance of the student um, in that story was then thanks to Holmes's intervention because he's the one who solves the case was for, was basically told ordered to leave. So he goes yeah. and he, cre- he changes his name and he creates a new life for himself yeah. and becomes well, it was like Walmsley or something. Walmsley, yeah. which then leads into um, the grace the creation of the Greystoke. Yeah. and so they he, he establishes a link between. That dis- that that character's um, disappearance, exile, and how Tarzan eventually ends up in the connection to that and Tarzan, so creating yeah. a link between Holmes. And, and it goes back even it goes back even further and though. I mean, it goes all the way back to like the uh, the 16th century or mm. something, and he, and even has like some sort of like uh, comment that it goes back to Adam and Eve. Mm. <laughs> but, yeah, but the records have been lost. The records have been lost. <laughs> but but uh, I mean, that's essentially the cool. One of the the great things about this, which is there is a connection between everything, yeah. um, and even in some in some cases between stuff that actually shouldn't work, like yeah. Margot Lane, for instance. Yeah. And this is not something that Eckhart says. Jose Farmer himself says this. Margot Lane and Lois Lane are cousins. Yep. <laughs> Ridiculous. Um, they going, Bit awesome. Okay. <laughs> so Golden Age Superman is tied in. Yeah. Does that mean that? Modern age Superman is tied in, and what, does that mean that any of the permutations? Just how far down the rabbit hole are you willing to go with that? Yeah, that's why, as I said before, with the rules, the rules are quite complicated. Mm. So, modern age Superman mm. isn't mm. the golden age is mm. um, through various ways, and they, but he doesn't just include the um, the sort of the more super, the more superhero fantastical characters. He includes people like Sam Spade and Philip Marlowe. So, basically, yeah. anyone who has had a popular presence up until effectively the sixties. Is included in this tree, and it, it, it's sort of that's what makes it wonderful. You know, no, there's a connection uh, between Marlowe and yeah. and Sherlock Holmes, and even, go, and even goes even more recent to um, I mean, obviously now League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which 
you know, latches onto this idea and uses Well, that's so probably well. the best known example. Actually, yeah. the best known example now these days would be the Avengers because yeah. you get the build-up between Captain America, Thor, Iron Man, Hulk, and you get to see them all come together in one big film. That's yeah. why that's why the Avengers, I think, was quite appealing to a lot of people because suddenly we'd experienced that for, you know, 30-odd years reading mm-hmm. comics and reading stuff like this. And then the white, but then the wild world suddenly got a hang on. That it isn't it cool that all these characters exist in the yeah, one location? Either, they can yeah. team up and they can go and save the world. Yeah, that's I was in the middle of watching Batman. I'm thinking, where's Superman? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Funnily enough, in the in the old in the old Batman franchise, they tried to establish links to Superman. They mention Metropolis in Batman Forever, and then they, mm. you know, at one point when Robin's given Batman a bit of grief. Batman says, "This is why Superman works alone." Yeah. <laughs> they tried to do it there, but it never quite worked because mm. you know there had been no Superman films, and both films were bad. Um, <laughs> both Batman films were bad. Both Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. Yeah, um, just make that distinction. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Superman the movie is still the greatest. Yeah. So there, there, there's there's attempts there as well, but the one, the really the concept that's latched onto it wholeheartedly is League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, yeah. which does pretty much does what Anna Dracula does in comic book form. Yeah. The difference being that it uses the older characters as its main characters, as opposed to creating two new ones and having them inhabit this world. Hmm. And does it so well. And uh, well, at least varying degrees of success. <laughs> um, there is a trap that falls in that this world can, that the world Newton does, can fall into, which is that you spend most, most of the time going, hey, isn't that a cool reference? Isn't yeah. that a cool reference? Isn't that a cool reference? And a lot of it does occasionally come across as fan fiction. You just sit there going, yeah, this is just you, this is a pastiche, this is you doing it for your own pleasure, for a wider audience. It doesn't really quite work. A lot of them, a lot, a couple, quite a few of them involving Sherlock Holmes versus Dracula, or Sherlock Holmes versus the, uh, the Invisible Man, which they turn into comics. And they're sort of cute and curious to read from, you know, a novelty perspective, I guess, but if you examine the stories, they're not all that great. It's just, yeah. isn't it cool that Sherlock Holmes fought one of the modern, one of the modern comic versions I, I quite I'm quite a fan of is uh, Warren Ellis's Planetary, mm. Mm. which has a similar well, sort of deal. Well, I mean, comics have been doing this though for a very long time. Oh yeah. Without you know the the, the you know you go back to Fu Manchu being the father of um, Cheng Chi from um, the Master of Kung Fu book from the seventies, or you know the the sheer number of Doc Savage meets the Shadow <laughs> yeah. books that you've had, or it's, um, it's pretty much a staple. Yeah. Well, finishing up, there's there's two literary concepts that we're always I'm always going to be interested in: those alternate realities, alternate histories, <laughs> or the Walt Newton universe. Concept. And then Dracula combines both. Does both. <laughs> and that's why I got it. <laughs> um, yeah. So there you go. So there you go, peeps. That's uh, <laughs> the Walt Newton universe concept. Uh, like I said, check out the website. Um, it's got some pretty fascinating stuff there. And uh, you've been involved in the Walt Newton universe without even knowing it, just by you know seeing crossovers and hmm. reading crossover comics and stuff like that. And hey, not just in comics, as the first one, first volume there points out, hmm. John Munch, yep, has been in seven shows. That's right. Yep, that's right. So John Munch from Law and Order, yep, Homicide, yep. Law and Order, X Files. If you even want to go that far, Sesame, Sesame Street. Street. Yep. And then they point out that you know X Files crosses over with. Um, Millennium. The Sim- Millennium and The Simpsons. Yeah. So both those those universes now coexist. So Springfield <laughs> and um, the you know FBI Washington exist in the same universe. Um, <laughs> although why no one has found, why the agents haven't found evidence of Kang and Kodos 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then really through The Simpsons, you can then just connect to everybody. Yeah. In one way or another, The Simpsons until connects to, to everyone and everything. Until you get to Kevin Bacon. <laughs> until you get back to Kevin Bacon. <laughs> there you go. I hope you enjoyed that. I did. <laughs> I love this stuff. Ah, the lead. When done right, can actually leave you with a smile on your face. And when done improbably, makes you go, no. Nah. Yeah. <laughs> Very good point. Things that make you go, no. <laughs> Coming up next. Coming soon. Okay, so coming soon, September 6th is a poor day for Australian film with the release of Kath and Kim Barella. Oh, dear goodness. You look at my, look at my, look at my. Please not. Please <laughs> no. don't ever do that. I won't, I won't, I won't. <laughs> I can feel it in my waters. Oh my God. <laughs> you know. I'm, so, I'm now upset that I actually mentioned it. You know, it will probably make more money than just... all of the Australian films released combined this year. You reckon it'll make more than Red Dog? This was last year. Oh, was it? It's got a big following. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, this year, probably. This film will probably make more money. Oh, no, Sapphires. We actually mentioned Sapphires in the previous uh, previous episode, and it's done really well. Yeah, true. Huge opening. That's one that I like to see, the Sapphires. Yeah, I'd like to see it as well. It's done really good. And that's good because it looks good. Mm. Kath and Kimberella, seriously, we're not seeing it. You're not joking with that. (laughs) I just refuse. I I, I don't don't even want to admit that it exists. Uh, then the week after, it looks like it might get a little bit better with the release of Six Plots, which we've mentioned previously. Uh, we also get uh, Madagascar 3 um, no. and The Watch, which looks awful. What's The Watch? The Watch is um, it's like a group of guys who have nothing better to do with themselves. So it's like a group of uh, home fathers who create like a neighbourhood watch situation. Oh, yeah. Ben Stiller, Jonah Hill... The guy from Swinners. That looks awful. It just it just looks disgracefully bad. Uh, it's a Vince Vaughn. Vince Vaughn, yeah. And so basically, they form this neighbourhood, washed up as a yeah. lookout for crime and stuff, but then stumble across stumble across a uh, alien invasion situation. What? And that that in itself, I don't really care. Who cares? Right? The concept doesn't interest me. But what the problem is is just it's every five seconds is some sort of penis reference, or, or anal sex reference, or it's just yeah. it's just. It's low-grade humour of, of the bottom run. Low-grade humour <laughs> with a jumping-the-shark plot. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it just looks horrible. And Madagascar, Madagascar 3, take or leave it. <laughs> Either a fan or you're not. Uh, they're they're all like coming that. out on September 13th. Okay, so let's finish up with... You can contact us by email at feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com or post on our Facebook wall at www.facebook.com forward slash nerdculturepodcast or tweet us at, at nerdculturecast. Or leave a message... Otherwise known as a comment on our website at www.nerdculturepodcast.com, and don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. Let us know in the in the review why we're doing things good, doing things bad. Let us know. We like to know these things, preferably the things that we're doing good, and that you all love me. But whatever comment, we're happy. Uh, so coming up next episode, we've got Popcorn Junkie, The Big Lebowski. That's right, there's nothing good at the cinema, so we're going to go back to a, a classic, The Big Lebowski. It's a, it's a must-see. Okay, we're going to put an explicit tag on the next podcast. Well, if we, I'm sure there'll be uh, a lot of referencing and quoting. We just won't quote any of the rude bits. Then you can't quote There's, much. No, there's gonna, not going to be a lot to quote then, is there? <laughs> It'll be fun. And we'll also have a competition to give away a copy of The Big Lebowski on Blu-ray. So check out that. Uh, we also have uh, Waiting for Trade uh, and a roundtable 
on the NCP's top five sidekicks. Sounds like like it's going to be a good one, so stick around. That's it for me and the crew, Richo. So who's this Wald Newton fellow again? Luke. Some relation to Isaac, I think, but instead of discovering, you know, important physical stuff, he creates aberrations and then finds some way to relate it to every single other person on the planet. Using apples. Using apples. Well, you did make me go see Green Lantern and, and Kevin in the Woods and Spider-Man and uh, Your Highness. Uh, we're not seeing Kevin. <laughs> <Spider-Man. laughs> <laughs> is there somewhere we can connect, create a connection between all of them? <laughs> Let's ask Walt Newton. Yes. He'll know. They're all bad. <laughs> Kevin in the Woods was good. Anyway, just before we finish up, I just want to mention that we had a bit of feedback from... Uh, Mr. Ben Kane, uh, fan of the show. Uh, thanks, Ben. He wrote in saying that he liked the Spotlight On episode about Joss, and if we could do some more. So, cool. you know what that means. We're going to do more? We're going to do more! Awesome! <laughs> uh, the career of you, Bowl. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> I guess I, it's pretty easy to say that we will veto that, <laughs> that suggestion. <laughs> Why not? Blood Rain. <laughs> Two and <Postal>? three. <laughs> First. Uh, Alone in the Dark. That is just woeful. Anyway. So that's right. That means there's going to be more. And uh, the next spotlight on will be covering the master himself, Alfred Hitchcock. And since Richo is our resident Hitcho file, he'll be controlling that particular segment. Hooray! Hooray! Be one of the good segments then. Bye! Bye!